I must say that uh, it's been a great pleasure to spend lots of time talking with lots of people uh, this week. I've loved lunchtimes, especially when um, our friends here who have been uh, investigating Jesus and thinking about the Christian faith have been coming along and we've had some great chats. I've just, I've just been uh, blessed enormously, actually, just by the opportunity to talk about Jesus together. It's been really great. Uh, and at a trivial level, I'm really glad that you haven't all started eating oranges because it was looking dicey f- there early in the week when the oranges just started disappearing. But, but it's all right, there's been enough. I've had my three oranges a day, it's all right. Tonight we have the opportunity to think very carefully about how the cross of Jesus shapes each of our lives. Now there's quite a bit we can talk about, but I'm hoping and praying that you find tonight quite practical and relevant, that you find it comforting but also challenging. And so along the way, we're going to do some different things, actually, tonight. Uh, We're going to have a time of reflection, sort of in the two-thirds of the way through the talk. We're going to have a small break along the way. We're going to have some music, all of which is to help us get into God's Word and to see how it's shaping us. So let's get into it. Now, advertising is a big business. I crunched the numbers once and worked out that this year, 2014, the Australian advertising industry will spend $4,000 on my family. That's right, they're going to spend $4,000 getting my family to buy stuff this year. How much are they going to spend on you? Advertisers are paid a lot, actually, to understand how our society ticks. Their job is to know our heartstrings and to play them as tantalisingly as they can. So if you want to know what makes our world tick... Look at the lines that the advertisers use. And when you do that, you'll notice that one of the themes that they keep reusing is, it's time to put yourself first. So here's some examples up on the screen. Last year, Bankers Trust in Australia launched a new investment series with this advertising line. Unleash your savings, it's time to get selfish. Time to put yourself first. When Sydney Uni recently launched a new marketing campaign for their MBA program, the advertising line was, me, first. Time to put yourself first, your ambitions, your dreams first. Even Radox, the bubble bath brand, (laughs) recently released an ad along the same lines. And here it is, we're going to watch it, this 30 second ad. What time is it? It's quarter to you. (laughs) It's quarter to you. Get selfish. This is our world. If you want to get a life, put yourself first. And it's into this put-yourself-first world that Jesus makes a completely contrary call to those who want to have real life. Have a look in your book there, page 34, Luke chapter 9, verses 20 to 26. Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, The Messiah of God. Jesus sternly ordered and commanded them not to tell anyone, saying, The Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes and be killed 
and on the third day be raised. Then Jesus said to them all, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves? Those who are ashamed of me and my words, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Jesus' call is completely at odds, isn't it, with our put-yourself-first world. No, says Jesus. The way to get a life, to enjoy real life, is to become my disciple, and that means denying yourself, taking up your cross daily and following me. So let's just think about each of those things for a moment. Deny yourself. What we have is a fundamental clash. Our world says, put yourself first. Jesus says, deny yourself. There's just not much wiggle room there, is there, between when that clash is so obvious and fundamental. It presents us with a clear choice. The world or Jesus. Prioritise yourself or deny yourself. Me first, to quote Sydney Uni MBA, or me not first. If we want to be Jesus' disciples, then it has to be deny yourself and... Take up your cross daily. Carrying your own cross to the place where you were to be crucified was part of the awful Roman tradition of execution. We saw Jesus having to do it himself when we read through Mark's account of his death on Monday night. It was a deliberately shameful thing to have to do. Sort of like carrying your own noose to the gallows or being forced to carry the syringes to the gurney where you're going to be fatally injected. People would ridicule and scorn you as you carried your cross. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, then you need to deny yourself, put off what you might want, and pick up your cross and follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a famous German evangelical pastor and a theologian who was executed by the Nazis in Germany towards the end of World War II. One of his well-known books is called The Cost of Discipleship, and I think he captures really succinctly Jesus' point in this passage. Bonhoeffer said, The cross is laid on every Christian. When Christ calls a person, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a person... He bids him come and die. Gee, that's a catchy recruitment slogan, isn't it? (laughs) Is he talking literally? Like, is he saying, you need to become a martyr? Well, maybe not need, but maybe that's part of the picture. He is talking about putting yourself to death, and that may mean martyrdom. But Jesus means more than that. He's using cross-carrying as a metaphor. And the next word is the clue, actually, that that's the case. Because he says, take up your cross daily. So you can't be crucified daily. Once you're crucified, you're dead. Literal crucifixion, 
is a once-only event, isn't it? Jesus is talking metaphorically. Each day we're to embrace the death of our old self, the ambitions, the desires that we might have had in order to follow Jesus. This cross-carrying, this denying to self is the essential character of following Jesus. This is what being a disciple of Jesus looks like. Today, tomorrow, every day, we deny ourselves, we take up our cross. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't ask his disciples for anything more or less than he himself is doing. You see there in verse 22, he's just told them that his vocation as the Christ is to suffer and die. So being Jesus' disciple means following in his not-me-first footsteps. You remember his prayer to his heavenly Father in the Garden of Gethsemane? What did he say? Not my will, but yours be done. But still, it's a massive call, though, isn't it, to deny yourself, take up your cross every day and follow Jesus. It's worth asking the question, why would you do that? Why would you do that? That's hard work. Well, Jesus gives three reasons here, really three choices, if you like, in verses 24 to 27. First of all, saving versus losing, verse 24. If you want to save your life, says Jesus, then the only way is by losing it for my sake. He says the alternative is you try to save your life, put yourself first. But, says Jesus, that will end in you losing your life. Now, we know that from what we've been looking at the Bible this week. We know what's the wages of sin. And sin is that selfishness of putting yourself first. Well, the wages of that sort of selfishness is death. Jesus says if you want to save your life, then you need to give it up. You need to attach yourself to me by faith. That's how you save your life. Then talks about profit versus loss, verse 25. And this is a fairly straightforward piece of financial accounting, right? This is just for all the economics people out there, accountancy. You don't need to actually be an expert in double-entry bookkeeping to get this, right? Here's the deal. You can have it all. The whole world can be yours, all the pleasure, all the prosperity that the world can give you, but it's going to cost you your life. You have to give up your life, like cease to live, but you could have it all. Well, Jesus is saying, what profit is it really to gain the whole world but lose your life? Well, the answer, yeah, it's not really a profit at all, is it? No use gaining the whole world but forfeiting your life. And then thirdly, he talks about shame versus glory, verses 26 and 27. This is really the climax, I think, of the other two. He's saying the kingdom of God is coming and your response to Jesus is the only thing that's really going to matter on that day. And in the light of that coming day, Jesus then makes clear the full consequences of our choices. He says there, if you're embarrassed by my words, if you're not prepared to take up your cross and carry it, facing the scorn and abuse of the world, then Jesus will be similarly ashamed of you on that final day. The only way to save your life on that day is to have been someone who followed after Jesus 
and in faith took hold of his words and sought to live them out now in your own life. That's how you save your life on that day. So one problem, I think, for us is that we are just too short-sighted. We're not making decisions with that final right horizon. So many years ago, when Jenny and I were serving overseas as LRLR workers in India, we were travelling in Nepal on a bus with some other missionaries. Uh, It was monsoon season, so views of the Himalayas were very few and far between since they were all covered in cloud just all the time. But this particular morning, as we were on this bus, just for a moment, the clouds parted and we could see the amazing Himalayan snow-capped peaks. And we'd been been there for weeks. It was So we crowded, while the bus is hurtling along, we crowded onto one side of the bus trying to take photos out the window before the peaks sort of disappeared again, right, behind the clouds. And we're all just saying to each other, look at that, that's amazing, how beautiful is that? Anyway, turns out that one of the group was particularly short-sighted. He was too proud to wear glasses, but none of us realised this about him. It wasn't until quite some days later when he's looking through the photos that he's taken holding them peculiarly close to his face because he's short-sighted like this. He's looking at these photos he's taken. He suddenly exclaimed to us, Hey, look at this photo. Look, look at the mountains in the back of the photo. They're amazing. (laughs) And we're going, yeah, um, that's what we were all excited about on the bus. Like we were looking at the mountains. Oh, he said, I had no idea there were mountains there. I thought you guys were just really excited about those sheep that were in the paddock next to the field. <laughs> he didn't have the, the final, the right horizon in view. Jesus says, you want to know why you should deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me? Well, lift your eyes, look to the horizon... The kingdom of God is coming. Do you see it? The Son of Man coming in all of his glory. And the question that really matters is whether you will be saved on that day or will you be shamed? It will be an utter waste to chase after all the things of this world only to be shamed on that day and lose your very self. No, the way to salvation, the way to save your life is to trust Jesus and his words and follow him. And that means heeding the call to deny yourself, to take up your cross daily, to trust him and follow him. Don't be short-sighted when it comes to the things of this world. Get your horizon right. And because the consequences are so significant, this really is the most Serious and significant and wonderful decision you can make. I want to encourage you, if you've not done so, take hold of that salvation and life that only Jesus can offer. Entrust yourself to him. Start following him down this road. What really will you profit by putting it off? If it's the only way to save your life. In fact, here's some great news. A couple of people this week here at Ancon have become Christians. Isn't that amazing?
Isn't that great? Praise God, he has brought people from death to life in our very midst this week. They've saved their life, haven't they? Not by their own effort, but by graciously accepting the salvation that Jesus alone offers. So if you've not yet decided to follow Jesus, can I just urge you, just with all the love and compassion of Christ, make tonight the night. I don't care really whether this is the first EU event you've ever been to. I don't care if you don't even know why you're here. You've just wandered in off the street tonight. <laughs> I, I don't care if you've been around the EU for ages and everyone else thinks you're a Christian. But you know that you haven't nev- you've never really actually made that call to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. Whatever your story is, if you haven't made that call, then don't go to sleep tonight without taking hold of the life that only Jesus holds out for you. In fact, before we go on, on any further, what I want to do now is I want to pray for those who are in that place of decision. So let me lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know you do not want anyone to perish. That's why you sent your son Jesus to die for us. We pray for everyone here who's still considering the claims of Jesus and the offer of life that you hold out to all of us in him. Please help them to know the truth of your word revealed in the Bible. Please help them to understand Jesus. Please help them to know your great love for them seen at the cross. Please lead them into the truth by your spirit and give them the courage to turn to Jesus in repentance and trust, so they too may be saved through him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you do want to start following Jesus, or you just want to talk or pray some more about it, awesome, great. Make sure you come down to the left-hand side here of the stage at the end of the session, and there'll be some EU staff there who'd love to just talk with you, pray with you in anything you'd like. Well, what we're going to do in the rest of this session is we're going to think through some of what it looks like for us to follow Jesus down the road. What does it look like to follow Jesus in the shadow of the cross? What will it mean for each of us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him? So first on page 35, let's talk about suffering. If we're following Jesus, then we should expect to suffer the same sort of rejection and persecution that he did. We should expect to suffer for the sake of Jesus' name. And Jesus says as much to one of his potential followers in Luke 9, from verse 51. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus' own experience as he headed towards Jerusalem, where he knew he was going to die, 
was rejection. The Samaritan village where Jesus intended to proclaim the good news of the gospel, they wouldn't receive him. They didn't want to listen to him. They refused to show him any hospitality. And so straight after that, Jesus meets this other potential disciple who says, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. And Jesus' response, in light of the experience of that village, says, well, you know what that's going to mean, right? You'll have nowhere to sleep. Even the foxes and the birds have somewhere to lie down at night, but I'm not given anywhere to lie down to sleep. You want to be Jesus' disciple, then you better be ready to be spurned and rejected by others. Now, I know that there's some here who know personally the truth of what Jesus is saying. For you becoming a Christian put you immediately at odds with your family, with your parents, with your culture. And for many of our Christian sisters and brothers around the world, this is the reality of taking up your cross and following Jesus. You share in the scorn. Open Doors estimate that in 2013, 100 million Christians faced persecution for their faith in Jesus. That is a huge number of sisters and brothers in Christ, isn't it? 100 million in one year. We ought to pray for their perseverance, don't you think? That they might be strengthened by the Spirit to keep on following Jesus, carrying this cross. I may not be able to do much about it, but I am part of their new family in Christ. And I can pray. But by God's grace, most of us haven't experienced that sort of persecution. And we should give thanks to God for that. But if our sisters and brothers are being asked to endure that sort of extreme persecution for their faith, how much more do you think that we could embrace the low-level suffering that we sometimes face for Jesus' name? I'm talking about the moment of ridicule or the cold shoulder or the snide comment we receive because we're Christians. We have to not be afraid of whatever comes our way because of Jesus' name. Jesus told us it would be like this. We can't try and follow him without following him on the way of ridicule, shouldering our cross. Don't walk onto the Sydney Uni campus or the Con campus this coming semester and expect to be loved by everybody. If they know you are a follower of Jesus, they may well hate you. Well, don't tell them. No! Take up your cross and follow him. The other way we walk in the shadow of the cross when it comes to suffering is by suffering without retaliation. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the Apostle Peter writes to Christian slaves explaining how to live a godly life as a Christian slave. And he tells them to model themselves on what Jesus did when he suffered at the cross. So this is 1 Peter chapter 2 there on your page. Slaves, accept the authority of your masters with all deference, not only to those who are kind and gentle, but also to those who are harsh. For it is to your credit, if being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. If you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, where is the credit in that? But if you endure when you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, 
so that you should follow in his steps. And then Peter quotes from the suffering servant passage, Isaiah 53, starting with verse 9 of that chapter. He committed no sin, that is, Jesus was innocent, and no deceit was found in his mouth. That is, even though he was innocent and he was suffering unjustly, Jesus did not retaliate in speech. Goes on, verse 23 there. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he entrusted himself to the one who justly judges. You remember how Jesus was astoundingly silent during his trial? And did you notice that he never responded to those who mocked him or taunted him while he was hanging on the cross? Jesus didn't need to respond. He entrusted himself to his father as the one who judges justly. So he didn't need to respond with threats or abuse. So Peter then continues with more echoes of Isaiah 53. Christ himself bore our body, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sin we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Peter's saying there, since Jesus suffered for you to free you from sin, don't respond sinfully now when you suffer unjustly. Don't respond with threats and abuse. Jesus has freed you from sin so that you might now live a life for righteousness. So don't let any deceit be found in your mouth, even when you suffer under a harsh or unjust master. And so Peter finishes there, verse 25. For you were going astray like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So follow the, follow the example of the shepherd when it comes to suffering. Now, if you've just followed what that passage is saying, I would expect that the hackles, you know, the hairs on the back of your neck, the hackles have been raised, if you've understood what's said there. So you're saying, if I'm treated unfairly, if I'm treated harshly when I don't deserve it, then as a Christian, I'm meant to say nothing. I'm just to suffer in silence. Well, actually, no, that's not what the passage says. It doesn't say suffer in silence. It says you should not respond sinfully with threats and abuse. There is a place for gentle response, for humble explanation. Of course, that may not get listened to. Right, so then we let fly with threats and abuse. No. Even if you suffer unjustly, don't let any deceit come out of your mouth. Follow Jesus' example at the cross. Entrust yourself to your heavenly Father who judges justly and he knows the truth. Well, let's move on to another part of discipleship. Page 36. Weakness in the shadow of the cross. Do you like feeling weak? No one likes feeling weak. You know what it's like when you're, when you're sick? And I'm not talking about a man cold, you know, which frankly is a pretty poor excuse of an illness. I mean when you're really sick. When you just don't have the energy to do anything and it's struggle just to do stuff. No one likes feeling weak. Moreover, our world doesn't respect weakness 
In fact, it despises it. Our world respects strength, power, might, force of will. You're so weak. That's not a compliment, is it? That's a put-down. It's disparaging. But like many worldly values, we unthinkingly have adopted it as Christians. We've walked some of that disparaging attitude towards weakness right into our Christian community. You see it in all sorts of ways. You see it when there's faithful and clear teaching of God's word, but it's not enough. It has to be powerful. We hate it when singing in church is lame, which is just a synonym, actually, for weak, isn't it? We want it to be awesome, strong, blow-me-away music. The people we think are good value in our Christian community are not those who show weakness or brokenness. The ones to whom we give the silent tick in our minds, the ones we look up to, are those who seem to have it all together, who are powering on in the Lord. Seems that even in the church, we're much more into triumphalism than weakness. Now, that's not the New Testament picture of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Have a look at how Paul describes it there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. He says, For it is the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, who shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure that is this treasure of the gospel, the treasure of knowledge of God in Christ, we have this treasure in clay jars. Now, clay jars were the throwaway cups of the ancient world. Don't think fancy pottery. They were fragile, easily broken. They were disposable. Paul's saying, that's what we are, clay jars, disposable cups. But we have this treasure in disposable cups, so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. That is, even though Paul is weak, he is able to continue because God works powerfully in him. The strength to continue and persevere comes from God, he says. It doesn't come from himself. And then Paul goes on to describe his weakness, his clay jarness. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And this is where then Paul links it to the cross of Jesus, verse 10. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So our lives as Christians, he's saying, simultaneously show both the death of Jesus and his resurrection. They are both mirrored in our present experience. The fact that we are afflicted, persecuted, perplexed, struck down, weak, that's us carrying in our own body the death of Jesus. 
But the fact that despite those things, we're able to continue on following Christ, despite that weakness, that is a reflection of God's resurrection power at work in our life. If he wasn't at work sustaining us, then we would be crushed, we'd be driven to despair, we would be destroyed. But that same spirit by which the Father powerfully raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us. And so in this life, as Paul says there in verse 11, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. So yes, we are weak, but that weakness has a purpose. It's so that God can display his awesome power. Not by us suddenly becoming triumphant superheroes. He doesn't show his power by transforming you from weakness to awesomeness. He shows his power by sustaining you in your weakness. By enabling you to persevere in that weakness. That's part of what it means to follow after Jesus. Because Jesus himself was crucified in weakness but lived by God's power at work within him. You can see it there from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. For Christ was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Now, three quick implications, three, of this for us, of this weakness idea. First is this. We need to recalibrate to the cross. As Christians, we need to recalibrate our values and conform them to the cross. We need to stop despising weakness. Stop buying the world's lie that triumphalism and strength and full-on awesomeness that blows you away is somehow in Christ where it's at. It's not. I'll tell you one moment that might reveal whether your values have been recalibrated to the cross or not. It's when you decide what church you will attend. See, if you decide to serve God and his people in, say, a less reached, less resourced sort of place, then often the churches in those places don't look as impressive as some of the churches in more resourced areas. The music is lame. The preaching is boring pedestrian, heard it all before. The people, well, there's just not many of them. And they seem to be burdened down by all these problems of life. It's just not very exciting, is it? Do you see how that's operating with a completely out-of-kilter set of values? Or to change the image, it's looking at God's church through a pair of worldly glasses. We've got to take those glasses off, put them on the ground, and stomp them into nothingness, right? And then you've got to put on gospel glasses, right? Put on cross-shaped glasses. Look again in your new gospel glasses. It looks to me like those musicians are using whatever gifts God has given them to serve his people. Praise God for that. 
Those people are praising God and encouraging each other in song, even if it is a bit out of key. They're singing from their hearts with joy to the Lord. My guess is that is beautiful to the Lord's ears. That sermon, it was faithful to the scriptures and it was clear. The people assembled here are God's people. They're weak, broken, but persevering in faithful obedience to Christ because God's power is at work in them. I can see it in their perseverance. So when we take off the worldly glasses and recalibrate to the cross, then we'll be able to embrace God's people as he's actually made them. And we'll stop complaining about God's people, which is an awful thing to do. And we will serve them with joy because we know that we too are weak. Which brings me to the second implication. You are weak, even if you don't know it yet. Now, many of you do know you are weak. You have struggles, hard things that you have to endure, burdens you have to bear in this life. I know that. But there are others here who probably don't feel terribly weak, if we're honest. You're young, you're healthy, you're at the con, which means you're incredibly talented. (laughs) You're at Sydney Uni, which means you're less talented, but you're reasonably smart. Life's pretty comfortable, it's not really a struggle. You don't face much hassle for being a Christian. Life's pretty good, you feel pretty good about it. In fact, your whole upbringing has pretty much told you, you can do anything. And to some extent, while sure there's hyperbole there, which you can identify because you're so clever, (laughs) to some extent you do sort of believe it. I mean, why not? I guess so. We could. You don't really feel weak. Well, let me tell you, you are weak. And there will come times, many times, in your life when that weakness will be revealed to you. Maybe you won't get some awesome job that you just assume you will at this point. Maybe you won't get that awesome job when you graduate. Maybe your family will break apart. Maybe you'll get married. Fantastic, awesome. But then, actually, behind closed doors, that relationship proves terribly difficult. Maybe one of your kids will get really, really sick. Maybe, maybe one of them might die. Maybe the church you plant will fail. Maybe people will stop coming to your youth group or your Bible study. Maybe the church your pastor goes to, or the pastor, your pastor is sort of, is just really, really small and it doesn't grow. And people say, you know, they visit and they go, oh, look, you know, I'm just going to go somewhere else where, you know, there's a bit more happening. Or maybe God starts to reveal to you just how proud or how insecure or how sinful you are in your heart. That's when you'll know that you're weak. And it will happen. Because we're all weak. I tell you this, Because I don't want you to get caught out 
and surprised by that fact. When you've lived your whole life with the worldly delusion that you're not really weak, that actually you can do it all in your own power, it will come as a real shock when those things happen to you. Because it's just not true. You are weak and life will reveal that to you. But you say, well, that sounds terrible. I don't want to be weak. Well, that's because you're wearing the world's glasses. You need to recalibrate to the cross. And in particular, you need to remember the final implication from this passage. It's okay to be weak. Because God is strong. That's the whole point of Paul's passage. We have this wonderful treasure of the knowledge of God in Christ in disposable cups. That's us, in the clay jars. So that it might be made clear that this extraordinary power comes from God. It doesn't come from us. So if you feel weak, maybe now, maybe down the track, if you feel weak, if you feel battered and bruised by life, if you feel hassled and persecuted because of your faith, if you feel out of depth in ministry, not sure you can really make a difference, you know what? It's okay. It's normal for in the Christian life, actually, this side of glory, to feel weak. Jesus himself was crucified in weakness and we're always being given up to death for his sake so that God's great power might be displayed in us too as he powerfully sustains us to persevere. So it's okay to be weak because God is strong. So let's then move on to the third part of cross-shaped discipleship. Holiness. Because we've been united with Jesus in his death, our relationship with the non-Christian world has been thoroughly transformed. Our, our worldly ties have been cut. So Galatians 6.14, Paul says, May I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So when Paul looks at the cross, he sees three crucifixions. It was the Lord Jesus who was crucified, but he says there, also in Jesus' death, the world was crucified with respect to Paul, but also Paul himself was crucified there with respect to the world. Now, what exactly Paul means by that probably bears some more thinking and discussion, but at the very least, what he means is that because of our death with Christ, our ties to the world have been thoroughly severed. Now, he's not saying stop living in the world or have nothing to do with people who aren't Christians. He's, he's not saying that. He's just saying worldly thinking, worldly living, worldly glasses, they're dead to me now. I'm dead to it. I've been rescued out of this present evil age, as it, he says in Galatians chapter 1 through the death of Jesus at the cross. So as a result of these worldly ties being cut, we are now living for Jesus. Have a look at 2 Corinthians 5, which is, uh, we looked at a few nights ago. You can see what Paul says there. For the love of Christ urges us on, because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, and here's the key bit, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. 
So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. So our old self, who was a slave to sin, enmeshed in worldly thinking and worldly ways, died with Christ. In Christ, we are a new creation. It's not something that we're just waiting for in the future. We are a new creation now. You see what it says there in verse 17? Everything old has passed away. Behold, everything has become new. You are a new creation in Christ. Just as you died with him, so you've been raised with him to a new life. And so as a result, verse 15, we no longer live for ourselves. See, it's no, no longer me first. We live for Jesus, who, who died and was raised for us. It's now him first, Jesus first. It's just another way really of saying, deny yourself and follow me, isn't it? Now we live for him. What does that mean at a practical level? To live for Jesus. Well, it means, first of all, don't let sin reign in your life. Romans 6 verse 10, Paul starts by making the same point we just saw there in 2 Corinthians 5. The death Christ died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also, because you've been united to Christ, must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. But now he draws out the implication for us when it comes to sin and the Christian. Since we're to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ, he says, therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal body to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members, that is the different parts of your body, to sin as instruments of wickedness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. We died with Christ to sin and we've been raised with him to live like him now for God. So God says, don't let sin rule in your life. Don't offer your body to sin. Don't offer your mind to sin. Don't offer your hands, your speech, your thoughts, your genitals. Don't offer any part of your body to sin as some sort of tool or instrument for wickedness. Why? Well, because you've been brought by God from death to life to live for him. So offer every part of your body to God as a tool or instrument of righteousness. Well, okay, well, how do I actually stop letting sin rule in my life? How do I stop sinning? Well, a bit later in Romans 8, Paul gives the answer. Through the power of the Spirit at work within you. Have a look there in Romans 8, 12 to 14. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh... To live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So what the Spirit of God within us leads us to do is to put sin to death in our life. On my own, without the Spirit of God, I would have no hope of resisting sin. In fact, I wouldn't even really want to, and I certainly wouldn't want to do it in some sense to honour God. But Jesus' death has brought this new covenant where God has poured out his Spirit into our hearts, and so by the Spirit I can resist temptation. This is really important to get. There, because the Spirit is now in my heart, there is no longer any reason why I must give in to any particular sin. Because by the power of the Spirit, I can put to death any misdeed of the body. In fact, that's what the Spirit leads me to do. Well, hang on, you say, doesn't that mean that I, in theory, could get rid of all the sins in my life? Are you saying I could be perfect now? Well, if God's Spirit had completely finished his work of transforming you into the likeness of Jesus, then yes, but he hasn't done that. So no. We are all still spiritual works in progress. But when it comes to any particular sin, there's no reason why you can't, under God, put that sin to death. Now, two important qualifications of this. First of all is this, just make sure that the sin really is sin. I'll give you an example. When you find yourself attracted to somebody, attracted to them sexually, is that a sin? Well, no, it's not. It's not a sin in itself to be attracted to someone sexually. But lusting after them or entering into a sexual relationship with them if you're not married to them, that is certainly a sin according to the Bible. And I would say that applies equally for those who are attracted to the same sex. Same-sex attraction, I don't think, is a sin in itself, but acting on that attraction, either by lust or, or by sex, is a sin, just as it is for someone who's attracted to the opposite sex. So make sure the sin that you think you need to put to death is actually a sin. And if it is a sin, put it to death. But second point, putting sin to death is not necessarily easy. Repenting from sin, resisting temptation, that's often hard, spirit-empowered, focused work. Developing new habits of holiness, recognizing the times or the situations when you tend to give in to temptation more easily and, and trying to work out what you could do to try to change that scenario. All of those things take time and thinking. And you need the truth of God's word. You need the encouragement of God's people to keep putting the, to death by the Spirit the sin in your life. So what's the sin that you're struggling with? Let's be practical about it. What's that sin in your own life maybe to which you're turning a blind eye? Is it a sin of the tongue? You know, harsh words, tearing people down, gossip. Is that what you struggle with? Is it sins of the heart? Arrogance, pride, hatred? Are they sins of the eye? Lust? 
greed, envy. Are they sins of the fingers? Harsh comments on social media. Yeah. Internet pornography. Are they sins of the mind? Deceitful schemes. Planning evil. Plotting revenge. Are they sins of the hands? Violence. Stealing. Quarrelling. I don't know what the sins are that you struggle with. But know this. If you're in Christ, then sin is no longer your master. In Christ, you are dead to sin and alive to God. So live for him. And by the power of his spirit, which is within you, put that sin to death. Take hold of God's abundant forgiveness and walk in newness of resurrection life. That's holiness in the shape of the cross. So what we're going to do is we're going to pause there for a moment. Maybe some of the stuff we've already talked about tonight has gotten you thinking. We're going to break for a minute or so, but let me tell you what we're going to do. I want to encourage you in a moment when we break just to stand up and stretch After about a minute or two, then some music's going to start. When the music starts, I'd like you to take your seat again, stay seated, and we're going to listen to a musical item. The words will be on the screen, but just stay seated. Be served in this way as a way of stimulating some Christian biblical reflection. Then we're going to have a period of quiet sort of personal reflection after the song where you can just jot down some of the things you've been thinking about so far tonight, maybe some action points, maybe pray quietly in your mind to your Heavenly Father about some of this stuff. And then I'm going to round out that sort of reflection moment by leading us all in prayer. Okay? And then we'll come back and we'll finish off the final section, which will, oh, done in a snack. Okay? So stand up, stretch for a minute or two, and then when the music starts, take a seat. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for all that you have done for us in the death of your Son and in rising him to new life so that we might live new life to you as well. We pray, Father, that you would help us to deny ourselves to take up our cross daily And follow after the Lord Jesus. Help us, Father, to not be afraid of suffering for his name. Help us, Father, to endure when we are weak in the power that you provide. Help us, Father, to put to death the misdeeds of our bodies in the power of your spirit within us.
We pray these things, Father, because we know that these are your good intentions for us, that in this way lies life. And we rejoice in the grace that you have shown us. We pray, Father, we might bring glory to you in the life we lead. In the power of Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the final aspect of cross-shaped discipleship that we're going to think about is loving in the shadow of the cross. The first thing to say about love is that Christ and his cross is our example. The cross defines love, but it also motivates love. Have a look there on your page at 1 John chapter 4. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. You see there the cross is both defines love, God's love for us, but also motivates our love for each other. What does that love look like? Well, the Apostle Paul helpfully fills that out a little bit, what sort of love entails, by reflecting on the cross. Looks to the cross and thinks about it and works out that's what our love's meant to look like. He looks at Jesus' humble, other person-centred love for us at the cross and says, well, that's who we're meant to be. It's this well-known passage from Philippians chapter 2. See it there on your page. Paul says, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, regard others as better than yourself. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You can see there, we're to have the same mind as Christ. Humble, other person-centered love. And humility is key. Because if you want to love people who may not be particularly easy to love, or who may not love you back, you need humility. The humble person regards the needs of others as more worthy of my time and energy and attention than my own needs. 
That's what it is to think of others as better than yourself. Not that, oh, yes, I'm so terrible and you're so awesome at everything, which is what people... That's crazy, right? No, it's actually saying that their needs, consider them more significant than your own. Elevate them over yourself. That's what God the Son did. He didn't exploit his divinity but died in frail human flesh because he elevated our needs above his own. So how do you go about cultivating such a humble, other-person-centred love? Well, I think Tim Chester gets it dead right there on the page. The secret of humility, he says, is never to stray far from the cross. The cross should often be in our thoughts, often on our lips, often in our songs, determining our actions, shaping our attitudes, captivating our affections. If you struggle with humility, and I know many of us do because we're all pretty addicted to me first, then part of the antidote is to keep reflecting on Jesus' humility seen at the cross. Now that sort of humility doesn't get much respect in the world's eyes. You heard of Muhammad Ali? Yes? Well, he's a very famous boxer, heavyweight boxer but who also happened to have a great gift for the one-liner. So you may know some of these lines. So his advice on boxing technique. Float like a butterfly. Sting like a bee. A few of you know it, okay? Here's, uh, here's another one. His own estimation of his own awesomeness. I am moderately proficient. It's not what he said. I am a bit above average. That's not, his famous line was, I am the greatest. And he said it to everybody. I am the greatest. Um, you may not know this one, his sense of vocation as a boxer. He said this, it's just a job. Grass grows, birds fly. Waves pound the sand. I beat people up. <laughs> and you may not know this one either. This is Ali's, Muhammad Ali's verdict on humility. He said this. He said, at home, I am a nice guy. But I don't want the world to know. Humble people, I've found, don't get very far. So the man who declares, I am the greatest, also says, humble people don't get very far in the world. There's the world's estimation of greatness and humility. But according to Jesus, humble, loving service of others is actually the sign of greatness. Listen to what Jesus says there on Matthew 20. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones are tyrants over them? See, that's greatness and leadership the world's way, isn't it? It's an exercise of raw power. It's Muhammad Ali all over. But Jesus continues, It will not be so among you. Whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, meaning himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus himself points to his giving of his life as the great example of greatness and service. And he calls us to emulate it. Greatness and leadership Jesus' way is willing, humble service. I quite like how John Stott reflects on this there from the cross of Christ. He says, The symbol of an authentically Christian leadership is not the purple robe of the emperor, but the coarse apron of a slave. It's not the throne of ivy and gold, but a basin of water for the washing of feet. If you're involved in Christian leadership or considering some form of Christian leadership, then you you better be ready to serve, to be a slave of all. Now, that's not what we normally think about leaders. Leaders get to call the shots. They get to wield power. But Christian leaders get to be the slave of all. Their fundamental task is to give themselves to see others blessed like Jesus has done for us. That's what love looks like for a Christian leader, a Christian leader in the shadow of the cross. And in particular, one final point, this means sacrificially seeking the good of many so they may be saved. Now, you remember Jesus' prayer when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Well, the New Testament says Jesus' attitude there, where ultimately he put our salvation ahead of his own desires, that's the model we're called to follow. So listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 32. Uh, In the context, he's been explaining how he would give up eating meat sacrificed to idols if that helped the cause of the gospel. He says there, verse 32, Do not cause anyone to stumble whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so they may be saved. And then he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That's what Jesus did, gave up seeking his own good, in order to seek our good, namely our salvation. And Paul says, that's the model which I'm following, and that's the model which we're all to follow. Now, it just seems to me that this idea of sacrificing our own good for the good of others, that they may be saved, it just seems that that idea has sort of gone off the boil a bit when it comes to our Christian culture. I'm not sure that I'd actually say that as a, as a church in Sydney or, or maybe as an EU, whether we've really got that, whether we're really characterised by that sort of love-motivated, salvation-focused sacrifice. Now, there's probably all sorts of reasons for that I, I, that I can think of. There's four distortions that I've listed there on your page. Sometimes, I think, we sacrifice with the wrong measure and model. What we do is we look around at each other or we look at the world to measure the extent of how much we've given up 
compared to others around us or compared to the world. We're just looking in the wrong place, aren't we? Where should we be looking? The example, the measure, the model is the cross. We sacrifice in light of the cross, not in light of what you're doing over there or what they're doing out there. We look at the cross. Sometimes we sacrifice only when we're compelled. We say, oh, look, I'll give up everything for Jesus. I mean, if I had to. But Christ's sacrifice was voluntary. It's actually not about asking, what do I have to give up to be a Christian? That's sort of a holiness question. Get rid of the sin. It's about asking, what can I give up in order to seek the good of others so that they may be saved? It's a love question. Then sometimes we sacrifice with the wrong perspective. We think everything we have is ours to start with. But that's just, that's just not from the Bible, right? Everything, according to the Bible, everything good we have is a gift from God's hand. So it's not actually ours in the first place. We need to remember we're just being stewards of the things that are already his, including our life, because we belong to God. And then sometimes we sacrifice with the wrong perspective. We think everything... Oh, sorry, I've just said that, didn't I? Sometimes we try to sacrifice without cost. Uh, We tend to give up the things that don't really cost us very much. So we give money, but not so much that we can't do the things we want to do. We give up some time to serve others in ministry, but we don't give up the career that we'd really like. Well, a sacrifice is costly. Look what Jesus gave up to save us. So we need to keep coming back to the cross and seeing there the measure of love, the level of humility and the extent of the sacrifice. And I just wonder if as a community we embraced the cross as the way of discipleship. And if we start to have our life characterised by sacrificially seeking the good of others so they may be saved, just what might that do? For Jesus and the gospel. Is it possible that this sort of, maybe a lack of this type of sacrificial love is actually holding us back? See, maybe we could flood the world from Sydney Uni and the Con with Christians who are ready to serve the less reached and the less resourced. We could send out hundreds of students leaving these campuses to serve Christ as pharmacists, teachers, musicians, lawyers, architects, not just in the places where it's comfortable, but in the places where it would require a sacrifice, where your job would not be impressive. It won't be with a great law firm in the city. It'll be with some country law practice, where you won't be paid as much where there will be less people like you, yet there won't be that great group of jazz musicians that you love jamming with and you get all those gigs with because you're working in rural Australia. You might even go where the coffee is bad. (laughs) But then think about for a moment, what really matters to you 
in making decisions? Does it really matter to you whether you get a good corporate job that will secure your future climb up the greasy pole for the next 40 years? Do you really care about how much you're going to get paid when, frankly, the New Testament talks about being content with just food and clothing? Do you really care about how vibrant the light life is, whether the coffee is single origin or not? I mean, if you're caring about those things, man, get a life. Get a real life. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Where did I hear that before? But whoever loses their life, their career, their earning potential, their coffee snobbery, whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. Just think, if we embraced cross-shaped humility and love and sacrifice to seek other people's good and salvation ahead of our own, what might God do through that for his glory? How many churches that are less resourced could we, under God, humbly benefit? How many people from all sorts of cultures and backgrounds who are less reached might we share this gospel treasure with? The answer? How many people are here? That's the answer. We could bless hundreds of churches. Thousands over a number of years. It could happen because we're in the room from the Con and Sydney Uni. There's no reason why not, under God, if we believe it's a good thing to do in order to see people saved. Except for just the small matter of whether we're willing to show that sort of sacrificial cross-like love. Uh, John Stott makes a good point about this, I think, in particular about our desire for security that often stops us doing some of these things. He says there, where are the Christians who are prepared to put service before security. Compassion before comfort. Hardship before ease. Thousands of pioneer Christian tasks are waiting to be done, which challenge our complacency and which call for risk. Insistence on security is incompatible with the way of the cross. Jesus had no security except in his Father. So to follow Jesus is always to accept at least a measure of uncertainty, danger and rejection for his sake. I don't have time tonight to read it all for you, but over the page on page 40, I've included a longer excerpt from a little booklet called Sacrifice, written back in 1936 by none other than Howard Guinness himself, who was instrumental in establishing the EU at Sydney Uni and after whom we name our Howie staff workers. Howard makes the same point as Stott, which is why I'm not going to read it, though he does make it in his own very distinctive, energetic and passionate fashion. So I'd really encourage you to read it later, mindful of what we've been talking about. In fact, I suggest you read it out loud 
as passionately as you can. But I guess the question for us is, have we gone soft on sacrifice? Have we gone soft on sacrifice for the glory and gospel of Christ? And as Howard actually says at the bottom of the page there, it's not enough to just think about that question. Maybe we're soft, maybe, maybe, maybe. Because following Jesus is about action. So how far are you prepared to go in following Jesus and in loving others and seeking their good so they may be saved? As Stott says, are you prepared to accept risk, uncertainty, danger, rejection, the disapproval of your parents, a less comfortable life? What are you prepared to give up to see others saved? Your time, your money, your reputation, your leisure time, your job. Your privilege, your success. Now, God is not forcing these things from you. In fact, he's given them to you. But he calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow Jesus. And that means costly, sacrificial love so that others may be saved. And friends, there is a a world out there, a whole world of millions and millions of people who don't yet know Jesus. There are millions here in our own city of Sydney and even more spread across Australia and overseas where, frankly, there are far fewer Christians than we have here in Sydney. So I'm going to end tonight with a particular challenge to you. I want to know whether you're willing to seriously and prayerfully consider giving up a regular job, sacrificing a regular career, and instead give yourself to vocational word ministry. Now, by vocational word ministry, I mean giving up other, other employment so that you can spend more time proclaiming and teaching the word of God to others so that they might be saved. Maybe you'd do it part-time, it doesn't have to be full-time, maybe you'd have a part-time job, but you would spend the rest of your week serving in a church, doing word ministry, or teaching scripture in schools, or being a part-time kids or youth worker in a church. Or maybe you'd do it full-time, being on a ministry team in a church, becoming a Howie or an AFES staff worker, becoming a chaplain in a prison, or in a hospital, or in a school. Maybe you teach the word to particular groups. You become a, a kids pastor or a, a women's pastor or a youth pastor or a seniors pastor or a uni staff worker. Maybe you do it here in Sydney among the less reached, less resourced. Maybe somewhere else in Australia or maybe like some of the LRLR workers we've been meeting this week, you might take the gospel of Jesus, this precious treasure around God's globe to the less reached and less resourced corners. I just want to ask you, are you willing to seriously and prayerfully consider it, to jump out of the the blessed rut that we are so easily in. Jump out of that and serve in vocational word ministry. Now, I'm not asking you to sign up now and say, okay, I'm definitely going to do vocational word ministry. I mean... It'd be sort of cool to say, you know, sign up now and then you all say, yeah, we're going to do it. We make the decision now. And then we say, wow, look at all these people who made this decision. That'd be so awesome and cool. But actually, it'd be stupid. 
It'd be pretty, pretty foolish, actually, to encourage you to make that sort of promise now. Because working out whether you're a suitable person to serve God in that way is really important. And we're meant to work that out together as a Christian community to assess whether we're a suitable person to sort of lead and serve in that particular capacity. But I can ask you whether you're willing to commit yourself to prayerfully and seriously considering making that sacrifice in order to seek the good of others that they may be saved. So here it is, in light of the cross, in light of all we've talked about tonight, of denying ourselves and following Jesus in his example of sacrificial love, are you willing to make this commitment? It's up on the screen. Under God, I commit for the next five years, prayerfully and seriously, to consider giving myself to vocational word ministry. Now, it's a pretty substantial commitment you take this seriously then it may well mean that your life takes a very different turn as a result so i'm not going to pretend that it's not a big deal it is but then on the other hand it's sort of not a big deal is it i mean god is your loving father your security is in him christ has died for us freeing us from slavery to the world's expectations And the very essence of being his disciple is denying yourself, taking up your cross every day and following after him. So this sort of commitment is not actually for the super Christian. It's just just for you. If you've got what Jesus is actually calling us to do, to follow his example. So I'm going to give you a moment to reflect on whether you're willing to make this commitment to prayerfully, seriously consider giving yourself to this sort of ministry. And then I'm going to ask everyone actually to, to close their eyes, just in case you feel embarrassed in a large group, because then I'm going to ask anyone who'd like to make this commitment to stand up where you are. Right? I want you to stand up, and then I'm going to lead, lead us in prayer for those people, and then everyone will sit down and we'll open up our, our eyes again. Okay? So I'll give you a moment to consider before God, whether you're willing to make this commitment. Okay, would you all mind closing your eyes? Just for the sake of those who are feeling a bit self-conscious. Thank you. If you'd like to make this commitment under God, prayerfully and seriously to consider giving yourself to vocational word ministry, I invite you now, please, to stand. Let me lead us in prayer for these, our sisters and brothers. Heavenly Father, we praise you for all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus, and we thank you for those who faithfully taught it to us from your word. Thank you for these, our sisters and brothers in Christ, and for their willingness to consider giving themselves to vocational word ministry. Please strengthen their desire to serve you in this way and to keep this commitment that they make before you and amongst us tonight. Please grant them wisdom and wise counsellors to help them understand their suitability for your work, And most of all, through them, we pray that you would glorify yourself 
by saving many. That you would grow your church through them, not just in Sydney, but across this country and around the whole of your word, your world for decades, Father, decades to come. We commit them into your care and strength for your glory and for the salvation of many. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Please sit down. Uh, if you've made that commitment tonight to serve in that way, that is a significant decision. And it's, it's, it's super exciting, actually, <laughs> that a whole heap of people have said, yep, I'm going to, okay, I'm on for this. That's, praise God, praise God. But we want to mark the occasion by at the end of the session, we have some sheets down the front here. I want you to come, I'd love you to come and write your name. Write your name that that's, you, you made that decision tonight. Write your name. That would be really helpful. And then we'll get in contact with you during the semester to see how can we encourage you to keep that commitment to prayerfully and seriously consider vocational word ministry. So certainly one good next step would be to come to EU's next step conference, which is Saturday, September 6th. There's an ad towards the back of your uh, Ancon book. But we do need to remember... This is really important. We need to remember, serving others in vocational word ministry is only one way that we serve others and follow Jesus. Remember all the things we've talked about tonight. Jesus' call is to all of us to put him first instead of me first and to take up our cross daily and follow him. So let me finish tonight by leading in prayer for all of us. And then we're going to stand and finish the evening in song. Let's pray. Father, when we survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, our richest gain we count but loss and pour contempt on all our pride. Forbid it, Lord, that we should boast save in the death of Christ our God. All the vain things that charm us most, we sacrifice them to his blood. Were the whole realm of nature ours, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, Father, it demands our soul, our life, our all. And so we give it joyfully to you with great thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.